Today we are in the third week of Advent joy as we prayed about earlier, thanks to our prayer team. And uh, today I thought we'd talk about the joy of being remembered. Many of you know I grew up in Austin, and so I didn't go to the Trail of Lights every year by any means, but uh, in the 90s it was a little bit easier to do the Trail of Lights than it is now. Um, and so uh, would go, you know, felt like at least every other year and can particularly have memories as a teenager and as a college student going even a few times. Uh, but seeing during those times either friends of mine who had paired off and were coupling um, or just other couples who were there holding hands and having this moment. And though I had not yet come to a place within myself where I was truly willing to acknowledge the fullness of who I was as a gay man, there still was within me this sense of, I don't know that that's ever going to be something that I get to participate in. I don't know that I'm ever going to have this. I want it. I long. This seems to be so much joy uh, this time of year as couples are doing things, and yet I, that feels like something that I'm totally sealed off from. Many of us know that experience. You might be married or partnered and still feel like you are a million miles away from the person who you are in relationship with. You may be separated or divorced. It may be that you are mourning the loss of a dear loved one. This Friday, when we have our Friday before Christmas service, part of what we will have will be tables on either side with candles that you can light. And some of that can be a sense of hopeful lighting, remembering, whispering a prayer of connection, of lament, of hoping joy for these tender parts of our lives. And I thought about this trail of lights. I didn't really, I don't know that it's really something that I would have said uh, was very present to me. I hadn't spent a lot of time in therapy unpacking the trail of lights. Um, but then like, December 1 rolled around of this year and like a ton of bricks, like it just hit me all of a sudden, this deep curiosity about the Trail of Lights, which is not something I think I had done in 20 years or more. Um, and a lot of that is, I'm sure, tied to the fact that I'm partnered, have been dating a wonderful man for almost nine months. And so I think for the first time, thank you, thank you. I... Um, think all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, this, this thing that I had felt somehow sealed off from that would never be mine, that I would never get to know or experience is now something that I might be able to enter into, that I might be able to get a taste of. And so though uh, I felt I spent way more money than seems reasonable for zip passes and parking passes, et cetera, to get us there, um, we were there. And this is not a picture of us, but Michael and I were like spinning underneath uh, this, uh, just loving that kind of deep memory um, of being there. And it was just this rich, rich moment. And I felt this overwhelming sense of joy, this thing of in my teenage years, in my 20s, in my 30s, and even into my 40s, thinking this would be something that had passed me by that I would never get to experience and then being able to experience it was 
a bit overwhelming, if I'm honest. Our, the Gospel of Luke starts off with Zechariah and Elizabeth, and it makes it very clear that they're a deeply devout religious family, that they care very much about the things of God and the ways of God, and they're set up to be this incredibly valorous, wonderful, ideal couple, and yet then we find the other shoe drops. Elizabeth is getting on in years, and she has not had a child, and in this culture in those times, and probably we would even say we feel the pressure in this culture today, but definitely 2,000 years ago, the sense of, oh, this is a great tragedy that she has not been able to have any children, that their family line will seemingly end here, and she would have borne the weight of that for so many years. But Zechariah is encountered by a messenger from God who tells him that what has been is not going to be the way it always shall be. And in fact, she shall have a child. And Zechariah is a bit dumbfounded and seems to be have lots of questions. And his reward for those questions is that he loses the ability to speak until... Uh, his child is born, which is perhaps some interesting stuff that we don't have time to unpack in this particular homily, <laughs> per se. Um, and so Elizabeth is now in an older age, in a stage where nobody would have thought she would ever have been capable of bearing a child, is now pregnant. And our story uh, that we read earlier begins when Mary, who in many ways couldn't be different, she's not old of age, she is likely a young teenager who is betrothed to be married, but is yet unmarried. And she is visited by a messenger of God who tells her that she is going to have a child. And so these women, in many ways, probably couldn't be socially further apart, both in age and status. And yet they're both are having these unexpected children during the season. And right before our text, which is oftentimes called the Magnificat, right before that, we have Mary going to the home of Elizabeth, and they greet each other, and they're celebrating this beautiful, unexpected surprise of joy that has found them. Which, of course, all this talk of joy leads me to go in a totally other direction and ask if you could be a supervillain for a day, who would you be? And where would you direct your shenanigans? So I wanna give you a few moments, if you feel comfortable talking with someone around you, share what supervillain would you be or be like and where would you direct your shenanigans for that day if you were imbued with such powers or capacity? All right, so we'd love to hear back from you. Uh, we'll, we'll take it in two parts. You're having fun with the uh, villainous shenanigans. Uh, so would love to hear first if there was a supervillain whom you could emulate, what, what supervillain would that be? What are some of the names that were shared out there? The, oh, wow, yes. The bride from Kill Bill. Okay, okay. Deep cut, I love it. Um, any others? What was that? Magneto, okay, yes. Some, we, there's some Magneto over here as well. Okay, apparently Magneto's getting a lot of love. Any other supervillains out there? 
more than what I, probably the one I was more curious about. So if you had this day invested with these supervillain powers, where would you direct your shenanigans? What kind of mischief would you get up to? Yes, okay. So I'm, I'm right there with you. This was gonna be at the end of the sharing time, but since you've already brought up traffic, um, I don't know why I think it's just that if someone cuts me off, that immediately all four of their tires should have a flat, their, both of their axles should break, and the windows of all of their cars should shatter instantaneously. But somehow in my heart at the moment when that happens, that's exactly like that's an eye for an eye uh, for, for what has happened. So I would definitely use my supervillain powers uh, in rush hour traffic as well. Others, where would you use your shenanigans, your mischief? What would you get up to? Disrupt the legislature. Disrupt the legislature. Which, you know, villainous or not, I don't know who the villain is there to be determined. Um, yeah, I think I heard something up here. High speed rail. Okay. Is this like a train that's going to be crashing? What's happening? Oh, build it up. Okay, you would use your villainous powers to build high-speed rail. Okay, I, would, I was imagining like the Spider-Man 2 with like trying to keep the train from going off the tracks. Okay, okay. We went in a different direction there, Parker. Um, excellent. Uh, I sort of got thinking about uh, all of this because a couple of weeks ago, I came across these AI images of... Mr. Rogers um, with different villains. Primarily, I would say if you were like a Gen Xer or a millennial, uh, these are probably the villains that kept you up at night. There's Skeletor, there's the Predator, the Joker, Alien, Clown from It. You know, there's just some, some deep, some deep contrast here between Mr. Rogers. I also sort of like the quaff hair of Mr. Rogers, that AI imagines him as a televangelist hairdo style in some of these. That was the other thing that I really took away from this. Uh, but there's this juxtaposition between this compassion, this kindness, this neighborliness, and between these characters that often would keep us up at night if you were young, kind of terrified about what it would mean if you were to run into them. Many of them embody feelings of rage, chaos, destruction, unstoppable power. And again, if you're cut off in the middle of rush hour, no doubt at sometimes you're kind of like, the whole city needs to burn. Uh, there's just a time when you feel that inside us. There can be a deliciousness to that, this sort of instant gratification of this thing is annoying me or irritating me if it's traffic, or if it's something like, hey, I really feel like what is happening in our state, in our country is unjust and I would like to use my powers to correct it. Could be this is really significantly hurting lots of people and it can be easy to think if we could just somehow hold the world hostage to get what we want that perhaps maybe that would make things feel better. We know the joy that comes from our external circumstances, the joy that can come when you're having one or two or three or however many of your favorite beverages. Uh, there can be that time that when you're having something that you really enjoy, a special meal with special people, 
that can bring this sense of joy. There are external things that we know. For some of us, it can be times of year. For many, Christmas is one of those times, and for many more, it is not. For many people, it does represent this sense of disconnection. We think about the losses that we have, the ways our life has not turned out the way we had hoped or we had planned. When we tether our joy to the external, uh, we can find ourselves feeling incredibly topsy-turvy and chaotic. And so there is this way, I believe, that joy is something that is meant not to be juxtaposed uh, to all that is bad or villainous in the world, but rather to be something that if we can imagine it, particularly for us, maybe not super villainous, but to those parts of our lives that still feel incredibly tender, to the trans person who is trying to figure out if they're going to go home and what that's going to look like over the holidays because they're not sure if all of the family members are going to use their pronouns correctly in that moment there can be real tension about what that looks like to someone who is tired of being asking if there's someone special in their life because there hasn't been for a long time and you're not sure there ever will be. For the person who is grieving the deep loss, I think joy is not something that can only come with the amelioration of that, of somehow we just made that all disappear, but instead is something that comes and holds hands with it. In our text, verse 46, Mary sings, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for God has looked with favor on the lowly state of his servant. Mary is not somehow disconnected from the fact that she, like probably almost everybody in her world, was incredibly poor uh, and was struggling probably to go from much more than season to season of having substance and subsistence and being able to take care of themselves. She knew that for her and for probably almost everybody she knew, life was hard and probably only getting harder. And so she doesn't say in this moment of joy, you know what, but the angel came and said, you get a car, you get a car. Everybody in all of Nazareth is getting a car. Instead, Mary seems to be delighting because she has been seen by God. That in the tenderness of her situation, in the injustice of her situation, in the pain of her day to day, God saw her, God remembered her, God acknowledged this and wasn't scared and didn't feel like needed to immediately fix it, but came near, drew close, ultimately because Mary consents, draws as intimately close as could possibly be imagined. And then there's this child as a result of this and Mary now knows that there is something gestating inside her. There is something that is growing inside her. And we ultimately know, most of you I imagine here, this isn't a spoiler alert, that at the end of Jesus' ministry, it wasn't like everybody has a car. It wasn't as if the Roman Empire had ceased to exist or had become magically reformed. And Jesus said, okay, time to ascend. I'm out, mic drop, up to heaven. 
though Mary is going to sing in ways that seem to hope and dream and imagine that if we understand what is growing inside her, her own hopes that are going to become the word made flesh, that it will have these kinds of world-changing implications. Her joy in this moment is not tied to them being fully realized yet. Instead, she seems to have developed this attentiveness to pondering in her own heart, this posture of contemplation, this perhaps prayer that has opened her up to be able to see what is good, what is going well, how God is at work remembering her and remembering others now. Sonia Lubomirsky, I don't know if I said her last name right, so I'm sorry, Sonia, uh, talks about three factors that have the greatest influence over our joy and our happiness. She talks about the fact that in her research, about 50% of what accounts for our happiness or joy is pretty much totally out of our control. It's all down to genetics and these kinds of things. But there are 50% of what we really do kind of have some ability to, which is more about our own attitude or response to circumstances in our life. And the three factors she said she thinks have the greatest influence is one, our ability to reframe a situation more positively. Again, I don't think reframing means repressing or denying. I do think reframing can say, okay, yes, there may have been this incredible big disappointment, this frustration, and it's okay to be sad. Recently, some of you know, I don't talk a lot about this in the pulpit, but I have a housemate who has a son, and the son is uh, in early elementary school, and I was recently marveling because he got disappointed, as will happen to any of us, but just the way he like physically embodied his disappointment with the dramatic like throwing himself on the floor and falling on the couch and just like every, it seemed like every muscle in his body was being summoned to show his deep disappointment in the moment. I thought, wow, that seems really healthy. Like I really wish I gave myself the freedom to just like go for it and say, this is not at all the way I want things to be. And this really stinks and I hate it and I wish things were other than they are. And also I noticed like he did this for probably like, I don't know, three minutes or something. And then he got up and was like, hey, do you wanna like go play with some Hot Wheels or something? <laughs> and I was like, sure, yeah, cool, let's go. Right, like there's something about I just need to get this out of myself. I need to express this and let it be, and then I've done it, and probably most of the time I'm gonna be ready to go on with my day, you know? We acknowledge it, we said it, and now I'm able to see this situation wasn't the end of the world the way it may have felt three or four minutes ago. Uh, also, the ability to experience gratitude was key, and so we can think about what ways we practice gratitude, naming gratitude, how we can practice that habit of thankfulness for where we do see real gift and goodness emerging in our life, in our community, in our world. We can celebrate the wins even if they feel like they are few and far between that we have. And our ability to choose kindness and generosity towards other people was the third factor that she says, if you're looking to cultivate a life of joy. These are the things 
You know, you're not gonna probably, for the most part, be able to determine if everyone's going to get a car, Oprah Winfrey style, unless you happen to have her bank account. But you can choose to practice daily these kinds of habits that allow us to be open to seeing the joy that is all around us. I can imagine uh, when Mary and Elizabeth get together, they have this sacred community. I had mentioned earlier that uh, Zechariah is silenced. And for the first time I thought, because ultimately we'll find out that Mary's staying there for three months. Like she's not doing a polite one or two night stay and then getting on her way. She's gonna stay there for months and months. And I thought, wow, what an interesting thing this is in their home. I don't know how often there would be the case that there are two pregnant women in a home that is free from the voice of the patriarchy in that day, right? Like this interesting thing. I don't know if that was what God was up to in doing this, but I do just find it interesting that the patriarch of that family, of that household, uh, did not have a literal voice uh, during the time of this, that these women would have been the ones who would have been populating the conversation and the ideas and what that might have meant for John the baptizer and for Jesus, even in utero, growing up for a few months in that kind of space. Um, But they're there and I wondered like what it might mean for them, how they have each other how they talk about their faith as something that can ground them, that can keep pointing them towards hope, that reminds them that God has shown up before and that God will show up again. Um, Their excitement about the fact that they are both going to have children, even though it was incredibly unexpected for both of them. These are all ways that even uh, in really challenging situations, they can reframe. They can experience the gratitude, the excitement of preparing to welcome this child and thinking of the hope of who their children might become, getting to see them, getting to welcome them. And because these messengers of God have both given them uh, some sense that God is up to something really big uh, in your life and in the life of the child who you are going to be the primary leader of uh, for many years to come, the excitement of what that might mean for them and for their world. Uh, and their ability to choose kindness and generosity, uh, they're definitely doing that towards each other, the solidarity and community that they are finding in one another, even in these challenges times. And I can think we both can imagine, like it's in the passage that we didn't read, it says Mary with like real haste moves over to go visit uh, Elizabeth. And we can imagine that maybe she's worried that they, people have already started saying really terrible things to Mary perhaps in her community about, hey, you're not married and you're pregnant. Or she's worried that that's about to happen. So she's like, before they can start to see that I am pregnant, I'm gonna get out of this community so that they can't tear me down. And we know that when Elizabeth finds out that she's pregnant, she's rejoicing because she realizes, hey, there has been years and years of people looking down on me and me feeling humiliated socially in the world that I'm at because I'm not pregnant. So they have both gone through some things. And they have a choice. They could choose to say, and so I'm going to, I hear the kid that's growing inside of me is going to be a pretty significant leader, and I'm making my list. Oh, you keep talking. Okay, we'll see you in about 20 years, and we'll see how things are going to go then. 
And I imagine, and I really wouldn't get, none of this is in the Bible. This is just me imagining in the text. I, I really do imagine that Elizabeth offered some mentorship to Mary in this regard. I can imagine Elizabeth possibly saying, you know, there were many years where I drank from the wells of bitterness and resentment as I knew the other women looked at me in a different way and I didn't want their pity, I didn't want their judgment and I felt all kinds of rage and pain to them and ultimately, after years and years of drinking from that, I just realized it was only doing damage to myself. So I had to learn to release it, to not go to that space that I could choose kindness for myself and that even choosing a kindness, not to be a doormat towards people, but still to have this posture of wanting to embody hope and love and grace and mercy that I could offer this kindness to the world. Again, none of this is in the text, but I imagine that Elizabeth was able to mentor Mary in this way. Uh, In Mary's song, She refers to God in three different ways. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for the mighty one has done great things for me. And all three of these are titles that coincide with titles for the emperor in the empire. We have this kurios, this Lord, authority. We have the soter, the savior, the deliverer. We have the denatos, the mighty one who is capable. I was reading this commentary, um, the Wisdom of Luke commentary series. It's written by two different biblical scholars, uh, Barbara Reed and Shelley Matthews. And I loved at this point that they acknowledged that they had a very big disagreement interpretation of this particular passage. that uh, the question that they had is, is Luke, as he is recounting Mary's song, envisioning a Mary who is wanting to swap for the power of the empire? So in other words, say, hey, we have been the ones who have had like the short end of the stick, but someday we're gonna get the bigger portion and then you watch out because now we have all the power and we are going to wield the power of empire in ways that preference us to the destruction of everyone else. Or is Mary subverting power here? Is Mary really truly seeing this sense of a nonviolent Messiah who is coming? And as you can see here, warrior God avenging on one side, as it mimicking or imitating the Roman power, assimilating the imperial titles of Lord Savior. Shelley says, there is contrast between imperial power and the power of Luke's God, but that she sees Luke reinscribing this imperial power rather than overturning it. I don't think that Shelley is saying this is how she sees God or wants the world to be, but I do think Shelley Matthews is saying, this is what I think Luke was trying to communicate here. And so we have to continue to move beyond it, that we can't just say, well, we want God to be for us. And that if this is what this text is saying, God is for us and not for anybody else. Uh, And so then we are free to do violence and use power in ways that are destructive. That's not good. But Barbara Reed uh, says, no, I, I interpret this differently. I do see a nonviolent God who is up to peacemaking, that there's this overturn or overthrow of Roman power, reappropriating imperial titles of Lord and Savior. She says, there's a clear instance where Luke is countering the Roman imperial values by offering Jesus's service in humility as a contrast to imperial power and arrogance. And so we are given sort of two portrayals of what it could look like. 
what it might mean uh, to try to seek joy, what it might mean to rejoice in God coming and how we would want to exercise power. Verse 51, Mary says, God has shown strength with God's arm. God has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. There's this envisioning that the powerful, if they have gotten their power by exploiting the poor, are going to find a day when those who are poor and powerless and oppressed are no longer going to be under their thumb and that if the only ways they had power and control and authority in the world was by exploiting others and they are going to be brought down low. They are going to be brought down in an empty way because all that they had based their life and their well-being on was the exploitation of community. And instead, what will be emerging is going to be this community that takes care of each other's needs and solidarity. And if that feels totally opposite of what the rich and powerful are about in that day, then they are going to be toppled down. Not, I think, in some punishing, violent way. So here I am siding with Barbara Reed over Shelley Matthews. Not because I'm a scholar. They're both way better scholars than I am. <laughs> Just letting you know the lids through which I've seen it. Um, and, uh, but we are then invited into that kind of community with God and to embody that kind of community. Ben Wildflower depicts Mary in a less traditional way in this image. You may have seen it. It was in an article in the Washington Post a few years back. Uh, has the words over here, cast down the mighty, and at the bottom, send the rich away. Ben got lots of pushback from people about this incendiary language, and he took a lot of joy, he says in this article, uh, and letting them know, oh, well, the language is not mine. Uh, I just... That's literally what the Gospel of Luke says that Mary was singing in the text. So, you know, if you have a problem, that's your problem. Uh, and we have Mary here stomping one foot on a skull, the other on a snake, with her clenched fist raised in the air. Uh, there is some truly of the power that she is wanting to wield in the world, not just for herself, but for her community. And I couldn't help but be reminded of a more contemporary image of the 1968 Olympics where Tommy Smith and John Carlos uh, were protesting after they had won the 200 meters in the Olympics event and one winning gold, the other winning bronze. Uh, and this iconic image, they ultimately were kicked out of the Olympic Village uh, the United States of America was not happy with them for this protest. And there is a third person who is on the stand with them, Peter Norman, the Australian who got silver. And right before, or right after Tommy Smith had won the gold and John Carlos had won the bronze, they came over to Peter Norman before the ceremony. Uh, the medal ceremony was going to begin, and I'm reading now. They asked Norman if he believed in human rights, and he said he did. And then they asked him if he believed in God. And Norman, who came from a Salvation Army background, which is, you know, its own religious tradition rooted in Christianity, said he believed strongly in God. And so then Norman said, you know what, I will stand with you. And so as a sign of support and solidarity, he wore a badge for the Olympic project 
for Human Rights, which is a black-founded organization uh, to show that he didn't want to take the shine away from either of these two men, but he also wanted to wear this badge as a sign of solidarity with them that he saw rooted in his Christian faith. And many years later at San Diego State, where these other men uh, ran and competed at and attended university, they created a monument. You can see that over here to the right. Uh, and again, Peter Norman said, I, no, I don't wanna be on the monument. I wanna leave that open. Uh, both because he didn't want to take away the shine from these two men and the focus on there. But he also said, I also want people to imagine if they would be willing to get on the podium and take a stand with others too, that they could figure out what it would look like for them in this day and age to take a stand for the just world that we hope to bring into creation. And yes, amplifying the voices that need to be at the front of that, but also just taking a stand alongside them with them. And I think it gives a really helpful invitation for us to think what might it look like for us as we search for joy, as we both lament the tender parts of our life and our world, and we hope and search for the places where God is at work and practice gratitude and choose kindness and compassion. What does it look like for us to get up on that podium? If we trust that it is truly ultimately God who is at work in the world, but we who are participating with God and with one another to bring about the world that God envisions, what is ours to do in joy to get up on that podium? I want to close us in a prayer and invite us, each of us, to make some space to truly be attentive for all the sorrow and all the joy that want to walk hand in hand in our life this season. And for others who might need us to remember them too, to see them and say, it's okay, we are here. Holy Mother of Mischief, disrupt our actions that do not align with our values. Disturb the places where comfort becomes stagnation. Rumble us awake from the danger of falling asleep to our own transformation. Turn us to face the ways we are complicit in harm and embolden us for the work of accountability for we desire to express your fierce and wily compassion. Mary, the mother of the nonviolent one, sang a song of radical imagination. She gestated the world to come. Living God, may we be like that. May we be like her, unbound by messages invested in our smallness and unabashed and participating in our formation. To you, the surprising God, to you, the nonviolent one, and to you, the Spirit who is making all things new, we pray. Amen.